Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Melbourne Universe User Group podcast. I'm your host, Arjen Swartz, and as always, I'm joined by Jean-Manuel Becker. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. And Guy Morton. Hi, everyone. I'm also happy to be here. I just don't always say it. You can just take it as read. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm sure it won't be a surprise, but today we're discussing the news of October of 2021. And I can already tell you, it is more interesting than some of our recent months have been. Admittedly, that's a pretty low bar. So, let's get started with Finally in Sydney. Yeah, Mac instances. So this will be good for developers, front-end developers. Who, who are the people who use Mac instances? People doing Mac, Mac, Mac app development? Basically, anybody who wants a CSCD uh, set up for their iOS and similar apps. Yeah. Because they can only be built on Xcode with macOS running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. As far as I know, no changes have been made to the Mac instances, so it's still just the Intel ones. You don't get fancy Graviton. It would be nice if they you know, put in one of the new MacBook Pros in there or something. The, 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 the M1s with the M1 chips. Yeah, the M1 and M1 Max or something like that. Mm, mm. I guess they'll have to wait for the M1s to go into the um, Mac Mini form factor because that's the form factor that they're supporting, right? Are there M1s in the Mac Minis yet? Yeah, just but only the base M1, not right. the M1 Pro or M1 Max. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll come in time. Yeah, probably ships or, uh, ship, chip shortages preventing them from releasing that at the moment. Right. Yeah, so to be able to do that, you need to reserve a Mac 1 Metal uh, host to be able to host your your IMI and uh, you can have Mojave uh, 1014, Catalina 1015 and Big Sur uh, 11. Um, it used in the back end a natural system for connecting back to the uh, AWS network, which is cool, and um, feature the i7 processor, like you said. So I had a look, there is no spot instance, so you need to really book that. <laughs> That, that box for the, for the day, um, it's a dollar 35 per hour in Australia, but it's a dollar zero eight in the US. So it's quite, we get a very strong tax here to be in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, and then, so you need to book that for 24 hours because that's a licensing issue with Apple and demand, but you can have saving plans and to try to save your money. And then, so you can go down to commit for three years to 76 cents an hour. And, and once you've once you've booked your twenty four hours, it's hourly billing, I think, isn't it? No, per second billing. Per, oh, per second billing after the first twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah. Your first eighty six thousand four hundred seconds are included in the price. <laughs> so it's around uh, forty four Australian dollar a day uh, if you want to run that on demand, and like a thousand dollars a month. So uh, a bit of deal. Yeah, it's. Pricey, but you generally don't need to run them all the time. I suspect. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you, if you say, as you say, if you're looking for something to to power a build process, and you just want to offload that onto a, a machine, there, that that would kind of make sense. Or if you have a day or a week where you do all your builds in AWS, then I guess that would kind of make sense. I'm sure there's plenty of use cases. But isn't that machine, right? They have 12 vCPU and 32 gig memory, use EBS in the back end, and uh, up to 25 gig uh, bandwidth for the network. Groovy. And the other new thing is the memory DB for Redis. We discussed this, I don't remember if it was last month or the one before when it became GA, but it was. It came here pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah, I think it was actually only last month. It feels like only last month. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, it was pretty quick. Yeah. So this is this is neat. It's gonna. I think it'll find a place in a lot of um, a lot of app stacks. Basically, a in-memory database based on Redis, so compatible with Redis, can do multi-AZ, so it's very durable, very, very fast because it's in-memory. So, yeah, so something that's quite, um, yeah, I guess, robust in, in a sort of production workload. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can use the latest uh, DBR6 instances on it, um, so from two CPUs, 30 gig memory to 64 CPUs and 419 gig memory. So it's pretty nice machine and yeah you have a price per hour like like any other other environment and you can see on on the website the uh launch partner is netflix and trillio so all the very big um consumer of aws so um, i'm sure they were part of the request to have that new service instead of elasticash so much more durable and uh, multi-az type of environment mm. Yeah. Very different use case than Redis in Elastic Ashes. Yeah. And you have a, an extra cost as well for any data written to memory of 20 cents per gig. So it's not only the instance, it's as well how much you write to the memory. Right. Cool. And that's it for finally in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to serverless and a couple of announcements here. For Lambda, you can now trigger Lambda functions from an SQS queue in a different account. That's obviously nice if you have cross-account setups. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice way of decoupling, I guess, whilst maintaining a sort of multi-account strategy makes it makes some sense. I just wonder, there's kind of a bit of an overlap here between EventBridge and, and this, isn't there, in a way? like Because you kind of could do similar things, either like you could kind of go either way in a way, couldn't you? I mean, EventBridge is a similar sort of mechanism in a way. You're still publishing messages. Yeah. And you can still go cross account there as well. I suspect that this setup might be a bit cheaper though. Right. Yeah, less moving parts, I guess, yeah. So you will need, yeah, you will need permission to manage the message uh, in the SQS queue, obviously, to execute the Lambda function in the other account and vice versa, and then grant account permission as well to, to Lambda to do that. So um, a bit more IAM probably permission to um, name the RN of the SQS queue. Yeah, so put your thinking hats on if you're going to set that up. It's going to take a little <laughs> bit of brain power to, to figure out what you have to do. And the other Lambda item is... IAM authentication uh, for Amazon MSK as an event source. is better than, than it used to be when you have account and password, right? So you can use IAM now and give yep. uh, the, the role to Lambda. And, and uh, so it's much, much, much more secure and easier to connect to MSK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's definitely an improvement. Cool. It's a couple of step functions announcements. Yeah. So the the, uh, the headline is step function supports 200 AWS services. And uh, if you read the fine print, it's through an SDK integration. So it's kind of cheating. Um, so they're not sort of first class integrations, I guess, or what they refer to as optimized integrations. So there's still 48 of those. So that's not bad. But um, so these integrations are done using basically allowing you to, to declare a resource that is essentially a CDK call. Uh, sorry, so not CDK. SDK call, beg your pardon, got CDK on the brain. Yeah, so you can use a, a an SDK API call as you you would specify a Lambda ARN or a DynamoDB get item call as a resource in your um, step and um, instead call basically, you know, 
as, as I say, the 200 integrations that you can you can use with SDK. So that, that lets you hook in a lot of services you couldn't hook in before. The only thing you'd need to be careful about is that with the other integrations, um, especially if you're using something like SAM, a lot of the IAM permissions that are needed to, to do what you need to do comes along with that optimized integration, whereas with the these SDK integrations, you're going to have to keep track of what your state machine is trying to do, and you'll need to make sure that you update your IAM policies um, so that uh, your step function is able to actually allow to do those things that you're doing with the SDK. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, look, it's a really nice, it's a really nice um, additional. Uh, I mean, step functions is just getting better and better all the time. Yep. And under the hood, this basically uses the new cloud API that's a cloud control API that we'll be discussing later on. Yep, just another way of creating things, which which is obviously what we all needed. <laughs> More choices, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but think of all the inline JSON you can now put in there. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes indeed. And the other one was uh, AWS Batch has console support now for visualizing step functions workflows. So this is something that um, they put in the Lambda console as well, not that long ago, I think. Oh, I can't remember when, when they did it. But this is kind of popping up the ability to, because obviously they they see step functions as a great orchestrator of other things. I guess they're going to start trying to help you use step functions to orchestrate your stuff. So much as you can see, like there's now state machines tab in the configuration in Lambda console. I actually haven't looked at AWS Batch, the, the console for, 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 you know, how state functions, state machines shown there, but you can sort of imagine, I guess, that the um, usefulness of being able to see uh, the representation of your state machine and where, where Lambda is fitting into it and where Batch is fitting into it. Yeah, so I think that's kind of a nice usability improvement. Then on the Amplify side, Amplify Geo is now GA. Yep. Oh, that sounds <laughs> a bit as a tongue breaker. Alliterative. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So this is the um, client libraries that sit on top of the location, the Amazon location service, and lets you basically add um, mapping features and functions to your app, uh, your Amplify app, very easily. So yeah. And also to therefore use some of those other things that um, the location service gives you, which is like um, geofencing and uh, you know, routing on maps and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so the developer preview was announced in August and uh, Amplified Geo for JavaScript now is uh, fully available. Neato. And the other Amplify announcement is just the ability to support upload resume uh, for file uploads. Uh, if your upload, if your app is uh, uploading files to S3, you can now resume those file uploads. If your user or the connection breaks and you want to continue a, a big upload that you started, so that's kind of handy. And the other bigger announcement here was at the public preview or beta version. They kind of mix it up of um, AWS SAM Accelerate. So basically, this is changes mostly to the SAM. CLI uh, with some extra functionality in there. So you've got SAM Sync, which allows you to only deploy the code and basically bypass the whole CloudFormation thing. This will be faster. And the biggest thing there is probably the watch flag. So you can have it continuously running and anytime you save a file, it will automatically sync it to the cloud for quicker development and testing there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so, sounds a bit dangerous, but yeah. <laughs> 
I assume this will only happen in that environment. <laughs> yes, yeah. you hope so. <laughs> I don't think you want to bypass things in your production environment. No, indeed. Um, similarly, other things that are included there is partial builds. So you can use SAM build test hash cache, mm-hmm. and that will allow you to have caching built into your build structure. And they've done some other things as well around that with moving some of the SAM specific code into its own Lambda layer. So it doesn't need to be updated whenever you do a push. Cool. And aggregated logs, because they now include CloudTrail and X-Ray as well. So all improvements if you do stuff there. Yeah, cool. And is that, um, do you need to upgrade your SAM local CLI tools? to get those yeah yeah it's new it's literally new cli commands or new cli flags yeah yeah so mm-hmm. neat speaking of neat let's go to containers <laughs> <laughs> they are neat because they're very contained <laughs> i guess that the main thing here is probably filegate support for windows containers if you must if you must yes so Fargate now uh, support Amazon ECS Windows containers. It supports Windows 90s, uh, 2019, sorry, long-term service channel uh, on Fargate. And um, it's built per second with a granularity after the first 15 minutes. So you have a, a price tax to be on Windows as well. When you look at the price as well per CPU and per hour, it's quite a, a different pricing. The, the Linux is uh, four cents, around four cents an hour for vCPU and 005 cents for um, a gigabyte per hour for memory, where uh, it's almost double the price uh, for vCPU on Windows is 10 cents an hour. And you need to pay on top of that the license fee as well for nice. Microsoft. So it's another 4.6 cents an hour and then the gigabyte per hour as well. So uh, which is d- twice the price, uh, 1.2 cents. <laughs> Big task of running Windows, but you know, if you need to run that on containers and, and do what you have to do, then Windows it is the go. So, if you'd like to b- set fire to piles of cash, <laughs> <laughs> then now's your opportunity. You can now burn it, burn it even faster than you could before. I mean, to be honest, Fargate is an awesome service, right? You don't have to run nodes and stuff like that. So, if you need to run a container line, then, then why not? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, Fargate is great. If you have a Windows container that you need to run, I would highly suggest looking into upgrading to a modern version of .NET Core, which runs on Linux. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And we'll get onto Babelfish later on. Yes. <laughs> we're quite the, quite the um, we're doing a lot of knocking of the poor old, you know, Microsoft people tonight, aren't we? Yeah. That, you know, it is a sport that we all enjoy. There is a support as well uh, for Bottle Rocket uh, inside EKS managed node groups. So you can start deploying inside EKS uh, the, the managed node uh, from AWS with the uh, Bottle Rocket operating system. Uh, Bottle Rocket was, uh, I think, released last year um, and uh, give consumers a simple way of to provision managed compute capacity uh, with a simple IMI, very light version of the IMI. So that's an improvement if you can use Bottle Rocket. And Bottle Rocket's the open source um, OS, basically, that AWS Correct. kicked off to, to basically be a, a very stripped down 
Linux-based operating system for running containers, yeah? They've taken out all the fat, all the things that they didn't need. Yeah, and having it more secure and stuff like that, which probably will impact some enterprises who have all their security stuff that they need to run on the nodes and things like that that probably won't run on Bottle Rocket. Right, right. Because it's too stripped. Uh, too light, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to install all those exploitable packages on it so that you can guard against those exploitable packages being exploited, <laughs> right? That's basically the logic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But it, it, I think it was a test. Uh, you would get much more compute and memory available for your uh, pods. So um, what's, a, what's a go if you can? Yep. And um, CDK for Kubernetes is now generally available too. So, you know, for the CDK fans out there, and I know you're out there, no, it's not just me. Um, and if you're a CDK fan and a Kubernetes fan, well, there you go. All your dreams are answered in one nifty project. Yeah, part of that release is also that CDK, CDKs, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, CDKs, yeah. 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 Um, now also fully has support for Go. Oh, cool. Yeah. So if you like CDK, if you like Kubernetes and you love Go, well. <laughs> I, think we're, I think we've got like a Venn diagram here with three big circles and maybe only a very small overlap between the three. But anyway, yeah. Uh, just remember Kubernetes itself is in Go, so there's some overlap there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and AWS says there's more support for more language. Uh, coming soon so um that would be it. so it's tab script javascript python java and go at the moment yeah cool maybe dot net soon <laughs> oh be still my beating heart <laughs> excellent what else have we got in containers anything else that you think's worth mentioning or is it all a bit ecs anywhere supports gpu based workloads mm -hmm. in all honesty if anybody actually uses ECS anywhere, please feel free to reach out because I'm curious about why and how. Yeah. Isn't the isn't the point of it supposed to be that you can kind of have an ECS cluster on your on-prem network and yep. and like prove everything works before you deploy out to ECS on AWS? It's not necessarily for testing. It's really like right. well most people who run Docker containers on-prem these days do it using Kubernetes. Yeah. But if you didn't want to go through the pain of Kubernetes and you would love to use the ECS management uh, container system, then you just install a couple of nodes, put your uh, ECS agent uh, and SSM, uh, have a HTTPS connection back to AWS, and voila, you can deploy tasks uh, straight to your on-prem uh, environment for compliance reason, encryption reason. I mean, there is many different type of, of reason you might want to run that on-prem, but you know, two simple agents on your node and you can run that uh, on-prem. And obviously now you can add GPU to your task. So I don't know if you run Bitcoin mining, maybe. <laughs> you wouldn't do that on containers would you you'd use bare metal yeah anyway cool the only other thing here is that after a mere i don't know 10 years that ecs has existed you can now see it in aws's own mobile application yeah. um it's a round of applause <laughs> EC2 and vpc then mm -hmm. big news a new instance type again yeah and we all love new instance types. Yes. Well, I, th I think I think you do mainly, actually, um, Arjen. I think you're the main new instance type enthusiast. So what 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 do you find? This is just a boring standard Intel one. Yeah, it is a bit, isn't it? It's just a this is a Xeon. Is it a Xeon processor? What is it? It's um. So it's the new Intel. Yeah. 
scalable, blah, 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 yada, yada, batch processing, machine learning, high-end gaming. Uh, so it's based on, what's it based on? The Intel Xeon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the C6i. Yep. The i indicating that it's an Intel, which is still something they only do for the CM and presumably R and maybe the X instance types and nowhere else. Yep. And it's it's not really sort of setting the world on fire in terms of um, compute price performance is fifteen percent up to fifteen percent improvement. So it's not you know it's not going to change your life necessarily. Up to nine percent higher memory bandwidth, up to forty gigabits per second uh, for EBS, fifty gigabits for networking, always on memory encryption. Yeah, so nice size, but same price, same price at C five. So that's awesome, right? You got you got all of that for free. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose I'm being churlish, aren't I? It's, 50, it's only 15%. I guess we're used to it. We're spoiled because we see Graviton and we see our oh, 40% improvement or, you know, big, big, posting big numbers. And yeah, so we've been spoiled. It's not our fault. So basically, this is in the same size, would then still be slower than the Graviton ones mm-hmm. and more expensive. Yeah, and they kill the planet because they use more power, right? <laughs> so they're not green either. It doesn't mention how much how much power they use compared to the um, ARM processors, but uh, it'd be interesting to see that comparison too. And the heat. Yep. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm pretty sure they go up to a higher size than the Graviton ones do. They go up to 11, you're saying? <laughs> well, to 32, next large. Right. <laughs> so yeah, 128 vCPUs and 256 gig memory. Uh, that's, that's a nice machine. Uh, so at the moment for October, uh, only US East, US West and region, but now just came to Sydney this month. Yep. Oh, good. Oh, this month, meaning? The month of recording. November. Yes. Right. <laughs> okay. So we can't talk about that. They're coming soon. <laughs> you've, ru- you've ruined it now. <laughs> They're coming soon. <laughs> you've, you've ruined Christmas. <laughs> JM ruins Christmas. So if you can, just upgrade, same price for each uh, level and uh, better performance. Yeah, but only if you're in those regions. Oh, no, it's, it's here now. It's in here now. Good, yeah, okay. Spoiler. And obviously, despite any comments about Graviton being better in every single way, that's not the case if your code doesn't run on ARM. So this is obviously a good improvement. Yeah. Yeah, where are I going to run my Windows box? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, moving on, one that I think we'll find very convenient is that you can now share AMIs across organizations or organizational units. Yep. So where before you had to share it separately per account, now you can actually just say, give everybody access to this secure AMI, which makes things a lot easier. Yeah. So that, that can be done only through the CLI, I believe, and you need to modify the image attribute uh, for the AMI and uh, state your org ID or OUID uh, to be able to share that AMI and that will appear in all the other accounts that they can start consuming it. In other words, if you don't have your AMI creation automated yet, do it now. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the advantage of that too is that when you add new accounts, those accounts will automatically have access. Correct. Yeah. Or when you remove account, then you will they they lose access to the, to your AMI as well. Yeah. Groovy. Yep. I think the other big one here is a bit unclearly named attribute based instance type selection for easy to auto scaling and easy to fleet. Basically, what you can do there is a while back, 
I think sometime last year or the year before, autoscaling got the ability to define multiple instance types where you could say, okay, I want a M5 extra large or M5 2x large if they're not available and I want them a spot or not spot and all that. And with this change, you can instead say, okay, I want instances that have a minimum of two CPUs, maximum four CPUs. I don't really care about the rest. Just give me whatever is cheapest and I want a certain percentage of it as spot. Yeah. And then it will automatically manage that for you, which is a lot easier than the other way around. Yeah. I mean, this just seems like such a um, an easy thing for them to have done it in the first place <laughs> in a way. Um, but yeah, so it's basically uh, figuring it out for you rather than you having to figure it out. Presumably also you can specify memory that you want and all yep. this. So, so if you need sort of high memory instances, you can say it can be, you know, two to four CPUs, but it has to have at least X amount of, of, of memory um, and it will just match those. And I think you can also do... You can set it on different... Um, so I think by default, it's going to go for the lowest cost. So it'll look for the lowest cost instances in that in that, that meet those criteria. But I think I was, read, was reading something about it having some other potential uh, like algorithms that it would use to make decisions. So it's basically typically lowest price. For spot instances, ABS supports capacity optimized and lowest price allocation strategies. And for on-demand, it supports just the lowest price allocation strategy. Yeah, so uh, I'm not actually sure what the capacity optimized um, strategy is. Do either of you guys know what that refers to? As as a, the lowest price is obviously easy to understand. I would say if you have a reverse capacity in in that account, then it will use that in in priority per ASIs. Or maybe it means it will give you the instances that there are the most of, perhaps, so that they're the safest. You know, the most likely to keep getting them. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, there are a lot of settings you can tweak it on, up to local storage, yes, no, um, how much, what type, Mm. Uh, bare metal, burstable, so the T-type instances. You can figure out a lot of those. So if you're going to play around with this, I'd say clearly read the documentation and then just define however you want it. Yeah, and there's an API for you to get instance types from instance requirements. So you can specify a set of requirements and then just find out what it would have given you, what, what EC2 instance types it thinks match that. So yeah, there's a, bit of, there's, a, there's a bit of tooling around it to help you figure out what requirements actually give you the answers you expect. Because I guess you don't want to suddenly get answers you didn't expect. <laughs> so yeah, so there's some tooling around that which you can you can explore. Well, of course, this could mean if you use this, one day you'll wake up and suddenly your instances are all running on C6i instead of C5. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's true. Speaking of Microsoft and our love for it, there are now the SQL Server on Windows Server 2020. 2022, yeah. AMI is available. Because we're... We're, we're, we're marching into the future. And you can run SQL 17 or SQL 2019, yeah. All the versions. Yep. Um, I've got, I have to mention Elastic Beanstalk announcement because it gets mentioned so rarely that I feel sorry for it. Like, when was the last time we had an, an announcement related to Elastic Beanstalk? So you can't remember one, can you? 
You can't remember one. It's been so long. Yeah. So so now you can decouple the database. Finally, that was a that, that, that. yeah yeah I know exactly. That's that's why I thought it was worth mentioning. So when you created a database in an Elastic Beanstalk instance previously, you couldn't decouple that later on. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to actually grow away from your Elastic Beanstalk environment, for instance, you decided that you wanted to retain your database because it's been running for the last two years in your Elastic Beanstalk cluster, um, but you wanted to spin your Elastic Beanstalk compute part out into ECS or something something else. Opswork. Opswork. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mention Opsworks. I, I, I'm, I'm triggered. I'm triggered. I, 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 have, to, I have to redo my uh, SA Pro certification really soon, and I've just got these night sweats that they're going to ask me about Opsworks. Do you remember the SA Pro exam that was like, a, I, think, I, think, I, think they've, I think they've, I think they've taken it out now. They've taken it out. I did mine last year. Yeah, I, I did recently. It's, it's not there. Uh, it's maybe still in the pro dev though. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is in the developer pro because I'm pretty sure I only did that only start of last year. Uh, and yeah, no, it uh, that was definitely they definitely asked about it in that. But no, was, yeah. So anyway, sorry, <laughs> sorry for the for, sorry for the trigger the trigger moment because it was questions related to that, right? When you wanted to do a blue green. A blue-green on EB, you were terminating your RDS at the same time. Oops, you lose your data. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. So anyway, good thing is you can now you can now you can now decouple it. So happy days if you're on Elastic Beanstalk and you've been grumpy about that. But I think actually it probably it's only going to work if you launch it new. It's not going to work to decouple an existing environment, I suspect. But anyway, um, yep. Okay, we've talked about Elastic Beanstalk enough now. Oh, good. Honor is satisfied. Um, FPGA announcement. I always like to call those out when we see them. So um, the FPGA, uh, F the F1 instances now have um, the ability to use jumbo frames in the networking of the virtual Ethernet frameworks. Um, so if you're doing, if you want to program a field programmable gate array on on Amazon, uh, you can now use uh, jumbo frames to get maximum networking bandwidth for your particular use case, which you would have to have in order to be doing things with FPGAs. But if you've got a use case for that and you need more throughput, you can now go do jumbo frames. So happy days. Cool. Amazon VPC flow logs now support Apache Parquet. I think that's uh, that's uh, pretty important uh, for people people look at that it will be a compressed format so parquet is a compressed format um, and uh, much easier to scan and to uh, to load yeah uh, so we save 25 percent on this storage and you can enable that uh, on a new flow log and it's also going to be more compatible with uh, doing it queries with it on through athena and things like that it's going to be quicker to to use yeah uh, probably less readable as well if you just want to look at the the logs themselves, so you will need a tool to be able to uh, to parse it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and network load balancer supporting TLS 1.3. So NLB now support 1.3. Used to support only 1.2. Um, you can use SCM. Yeah, more improvement with 1.3. Better security. Yeah, and we can't forget that Lightsail now supports CloudFormation. 
Yes, I, I, I knew you'd have to bring that one up. <laughs> What's the point? I know it's a it's sort of a feels feels it feels a certain amount of cognitive dissonance there, isn't there? Like if you just want to point and click and create a server and a database and just install WordPress or, or yeah, have a pre-installed with WordPress, use LightSail. Ah, but you might want to set that up with CloudFormation. Yeah, you might want FSSHR's code to look cool. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does seem a bit odd, but look, they must have got a request from someone that said, you know, I want to deploy 500 light sales. Give me a cloud formation template. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I or guess it could just be part of the every surface needs support for cloud formation mm. and the light sale team, unlike a whole bunch of other teams actually listened. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I have no idea how good it is, by the way, because I did not bother looking at it. Yeah, no. Yeah, can you deploy your containers to CloudFormation and LightSail? That would be interesting. No, it's only instances, disks, and databases, according to the announcement. I, I, I want them to have, like, WordPress as a CloudFormation resource, you know, latest WordPress. I don't really. <laughs> Cloud Control, we've moved on, haven't we? Yes, we're now in DevOps. Yeah. So cloud control. I'm sure I you knew if you've, you must have looked at this. Looked at it. I haven't really had a chance to uh, play around with it much yet. <clears throat> it's like the 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 one ring to rule them all concept yet again, isn't it? Like yep. it's um, forget about Terraform, or you can use Terraform, but why don't you use it through cloud control and use cloud control to drive Terraform to create resources or. Am I getting that wrong? I uh, know it's more Terraform to drive cloud control and to be a more simpler type of, of operator, yeah. Right. Um, so you can do that to CLI. You need to upgrade your CLI to 2.3 minimum. And uh, yeah, it's simpler. Get resource, create resource. Uh, that's a simple command you can use. That's a simple command, and then you have blob of JSON. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I didn't. That's that's what didn't didn't. Then you need to learn CloudFormation to be able to to create your JSON payload and then send that to create. So I think it's good for get resource uh, probably because you can you know just name what you want and and do a quick instead of learning easy to describe and all of that you can just get resource but to create stuff uh, you still that very complex json payload that you need to generate anyway so i don't know yeah did did, did was there a demand for this like was there like who was asking for this i'm just wondering well ashikorp and pulumi are the launch partner uh, I saw, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. So, so do you think it's driven by? Do you think it's AWS is doing this because they think people might drift away to Terraform or Pulumi because it's perceived as easier, or it's is it the model that it's like you're defining your infrastructure and then saying, um, this is the target state I want it to have, like that Terraform model. I don't know, but they CDK to respond to Terraform. I, I don't know. That's another. Uh, does it? I mean, CDK seems to fill a slightly different spot to me. But I mean, the, isn't the kind of the key difference or the key key kind of conceptual differentiator for Terraform that the way you declare your infrastructure is like you you you're basically saying what state you want it to have, and then it's going away and figuring out how to make that state happen. And it's looked to me like cloud control was using similar kind of language, like here's the thing I want and here's the state I want it to have. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah. Maybe. The other, I would say, launch partner is obviously though um, step functions. <laughs> 
because that's using this. Is it? That is how they get the 200s. Oh, the SDK. Right. Gotcha, of course. Because that is literally the same commands. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Right. But you can create your own because it rely on the cloud formation public registry, right? To create that, that resource name and that, so the type name and the desired state. So, uh, part of the announcement, and I didn't try that. You could create your own product name, you know, Argen, and uh, people can use uh, AWS Cloud Control, create resource type name Argen, and then automatically he will uh, get that that he will appear, he will appear <laughs> <laughs> in your account as an infrastructure product. Um, so that could be uh, you know a large scale uh, way of doing marketplace product uh, for people with infrastructure as code. I mean, I think it's interesting. It just feels to me like um, there's so many ways now to create infrastructure and define, you know, define what you're building. And it's kind of, uh, it just feels like this is just another one being thrown into the mix and, and it would be good to get some sort of sense of where this is heading and you know, yeah, what what sort of horses one should be looking to to back, I guess, because um, because they're all quite different different approaches. I mean, I guess this is at the end of the day, it's just an API. It's not a replacement for cloud formation per se. It's just another. It's just really another way of generating the same sorts of resources that cloud formation is generating, which at the end of the day is calling an API and making things happen anyway, right? But yeah. The- I guess the fact that it uses CloudFormation under the hood might actually explain as well why LightSail now has CloudFormation support. Oh, right. So that you can use cloud control with it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, create resource, type name, LightSail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, to be honest, in enterprise, what do we see? Uh, we see CloudFormation on Terraform. That's it. Um, very little other kind of pocket of things. I mean, in... in my contact with big, big enterprises is what, what I see, and, and many Terraform is winning. I see more CDK now as well. Okay, okay. I found that uh, some people don't want to learn the language, or they don't want to bother with TypeScript or Python, and they they say they just ignore it. Well, a lot of it is with the application teams mm-hmm. who already write their applications in the same language. That's right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking as somebody in that space, I think it's it CDK is appealing because it's something you understand. It's an application. It's interesting. Did, did anyone see or, re- or listen to the uh, Ian McKay's podcast that he did? I think he he bagged C- CDK a little bit. Well, he didn't bag it, but he was basically sort of saying the reason he just he prefers CloudFormation over CDK is. Just the nature of CDK being written in a programming language, the implicit kind of risk in that is that every time you run it, you get a different result, right? And whereas with a CloudFormation template, you know, with static YAML, it's not a programming language. It's not, you know, you don't have that same, the, the sense is not the same that, that it can it can be varied or it can it can morph from, from from what you deployed you know so it's interesting it's interesting and I, I guess it's interesting how even the cdk has has drifted a little bit from some things you could do in cdk previously you now they're kind of stopping you from doing things like um it seems like the cdk's you, you know some things you used to be able to do like uh, you know read um 
uh, like get get the VPCs or the subnets from your account. Some of those sorts of things, they're sort of now saying, well, oh, you shouldn't really work that way. You should have a hard-coded file of, you know, configuration that you check into your repository and use with your CDK project, which is kind of, it feels like the, the ideas around this sort of stuff are sort of morphing a little bit. Uh, about what the what the right way to do it is and what all the I guess pros and cons of different ways of doing this stuff as I guess people get more experience they're they're sort of figuring out what's good to do and what's bad to do I thought that was a strength to be able to do a more dynamic type of templates and and adapting to what the infrastructure is yeah yeah like loading SSM parameters and all of that on the fly that's much better than hard coding stuff right sure 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 absolutely and I think um, that ability to actually, because it's a program, to to morph it and and make it do different things. Well, the obvious example is you know different you know environments, and you know you want to have slightly different behavior in different environments or different instance types or whatever. All those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean that that is a definitely a, a reason to use it. But I can also see the other side of that, where you know the fact that something might change and you didn't necessarily expect it or want it to change. It makes engineers nervous <laughs> to have things be unexpected. So, yeah. Other things in DevOps, CodeGuru has some more integrations with third-party toolings. I guess that's nice. Yep, mostly Java-related. Uh, the infer thing is a Java feature, a Java um, integration of an open source project. And the, the only one that I like is the Python one. The, the Bandit version, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's um, for detecting sort of common... The OWASP uh, categories. Yeah, it's the, uh, the OWASP stuff, yeah. Um, speaking of CDK, so there's some news around uh, new, four new releases of CDK. I'm surprised that they actually made an announcement about this, actually, because they, they're up to version 125 of version 1, and... Uh, so they do releases all the time, but they've actually done a, a, a proper announcement this time. Um, I guess because they've got some features that have been released in these re these um, versions for supporting the new uh, CloudWatch uh, rollback behaviors. So you, you can you can do the rollback behavior where you retain. Um, you retain resources that were successfully created and retry. CloudFormation, you mean? What did I say? You said CloudWatch. CloudWatch, sorry. Yes, yes, CloudFormation. Do beg your pardon. Too many cloud cloud words. Um, yeah, so it's got support for that um, partial, partial um, deploy. And and uh, the there's some other stuff around hot swap, hot swap deployments, but I'm not really quite sure how that works. Um, but it's to do with um, uh, just, again, part, just deploying bits that have changed. Uh, specifically, it's around Lambda, but additional resource types are coming so it'll have like a watcher, I think, which is similar to what um, Sam uh, has got has now. Ian, I think that. So I suspect that the, the similar similar um, features are being uh, rolled into CDK as well. At least version one. I don't know about version two because they don't ever seem to announce anything about version two. Anyway, moving on, we have our mandatory mention of Amazon Coretto. Oh, uh, it has the October quarterly updates, <laughs> which is. So pointless that not even AWS <laughs> itself describes what changed. He's <laughs> so unkind. Um, there is one other uh, announcement in the IAC thing, though. The CloudFormation customers can now manage their applications in AWS Systems Manager. 
have, have you guys seen Application Manager in Systems Manager? No, we don't use it. Not yeah. really. And okay. I try to uh, avoid this. Right. Right. You try to avoid it. Why is that? You don't like it? Or you just... just yeah. I mean, the, the interesting... I only bring it up because um, I happen to be looking in CloudWatch at the um, application monitoring feature that basically lets you point at, at a CloudFormation stack and it will then go through and query, find out all, find all the resources, then... Find the resources and show, show you that in a dashboard, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Put, put, them, put them all on a dashboard for you, which actually looks... It looked pretty interesting. I don't know how useful it is or how customizable it is or, you know, whether in practice it, it becomes annoying, but it looked to me like this is all part of that same piece. Yeah, probably, yeah. And then because System Manager, um, it's the application component as well, yeah. The application manager part to, to be able to see your app into that uh, dashboard, yeah. Yep, yep. And it has things like, um, you know, compliance, a compliance checker, and so you can you can kind of look at your resources. The interesting thing about it, or the, the neat thing about it, one of the neat things about it too was it ag- actually aggregated all your logs for all those resources in a single list too. So you could just actually go in under the, the logs tab and here's the log for your API gateway. Here's the log for all your different Lambda functions. Here's the log for your Dynamo table. Here's the log for, you know, and it was all sort of in one, one spot. Does it force you to have nested stack then for your application to be able to link them together? No. No, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess maybe. I guess. I guess the one thing I did, yeah, that did that I did wonder about was, well, can I add another stack to this? Because actually, my application's made of you know four stacks, and they're not. Then you know, I want to be actually be able to put them all on the one dashboard. That's what I meant. Like, if you had net stack, then they could detect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yes, I don't know. Maybe do you think it's a dastardly plot to make you make you do use nested stacks? <laughs> could be, could be. Yeah, don't don't drink the Kool Aid. But there's two help troubleshootings, I guess, and then centralize that. Uh, in the past, I know that for customer we had to create, you know, dashboard from the cloud formation at the end of the cloud formation to uh, uh, have that quick like CPU memory and stuff like that. But now that can that can be done automatically. That's uh, probably an improvement there yeah yeah look i think it's pretty it's it's got potential I, I don't know it may not be very mature yet it may be something that um that gets you know seen as a poorly implemented feature i haven't had enough time to look at it yet but i thought it was interesting at least and if you haven't had a look at it yourself then have a look at it uh an interesting one is the fault injection simulator and uh, i can inject uh suppose instances interruption so for people who want to use spot instances and test it uh, without have suffering the impact then um, i remind everyone else spot instance uh, interruption notice uh, have a warning of just two minutes so you need to be able to stop your instance so uh, and get the logs out and, and do all sort of things so you can now use the the fees uh, the fault ejection simulator to simulate a spot instance uh, recall and uh, and see if your application can survive Okay, on to security. Mm. Uh, AWS Firewall Manager now supports centralized logging for AWS Network Firewall Logs. So that's uh, pretty good. Uh, you can uh, choose a filter web request based on role actions, um, apply the web request, 
uh, on both. And then um, for each filter, you can now indicate whether matching requests should be logged or not. So that uh, allow you to reduce the number of logs as well. And you can do that across uh, your organization so for your own manager. So that's, that's good. Yeah. And there's another uh, network firewall announcement around um, rule ordering. So previously, the network firewall would evaluate all your pass rules before evaluating your drop rules or alert rules. And now you can actually order them however you like. So you can have a, a pass rule, then a drop rule, then a alert rule, then a pass rule, then a, and it will evaluate them in the order that you specify rather than the order that they felt like doing them in. So give you more um, computation, I mean, uh permutation possibilities to create denial rules, yeah. yeah. Then on the AWS backup side, we've got um, FaultLock, which basically allows you to, um, they call it an extra layer for backup protection. Yeah, it, it allows you to lock a backup so it can't be changed. Or it can be deleted, uh, yeah. It can be deleted mostly, yeah. So it's done through the CLI or the API, um, and you need to define your, um, obviously, the, the vault lock, how long you can change it. You have a grace period, a bit like uh, Glacier has a vault lock, the same, and you have a minimum retention uh, and a maximum retention. Uh, and then from there, uh, basically, your uh, backup vault become write once, read many, uh, where you can restore from that, but you can't delete. And uh, for people who you know need to have long-term uh, retention for backups, that's a good good way of just sim- simply protecting your account for any attacks. You know, there was some attack uh, in the past where people were deleting all the resources, including the snapshot, into your account uh, when they were hacked. And in, in that case, uh, the vault uh, will protect that and you will be able to restore your data from that. And that's applied, obviously, for everything inside the AWS Backup Vault. So EFS, Snapshots, EC2, RDS, and Dynamo, I believe, yeah. Yeah, cool. Then I think one of the most requested features for Security Hub arrived with a cross-region aggregation. So you're now no longer stuck with having a Security Hub in each region, having to go through each of them to see if what happened. You can now send it all to one single security hub instance in a single account from all your regions and accounts. You will hope they all agree because otherwise it will be unreadable. I think, you know, with all the region available and if you have 100 accounts, I don't know how you can just be able to see what's, what's green, what's not. But yeah, um, interesting centralization. People in security, they love to have that one pan of glass, which I hate the name. Spog. We need a spog. To be able to see all your security in one place. Um, So um, that might be a useful feature. Yeah. Yep. AWS License Manager now support delegated administrator for management and entitlement. So uh, you can delegate an AWS account just for your uh, license manager. That has been a process that all the product from AWS have been doing uh, recently in the last two years, I guess, get everything out of the master account into a different account dedicated for that specific function, for backup, for firewall manager, for license manager now. So that's uh, not that you're all following for that. And when you say <coughs> master account, you mean main account, obviously. The root account, the, yeah. the, the main. <laughs> <laughs> Data storage and processing, good news. The good news of the month. 
Yeah, that's right. Who wants to talk about Babelfish? We all want to talk about Babelfish. So Babelfish is a um, is a layer for translating requests uh, that you're, you'd normally need a SQL server to listen to and uh, translate them into a language that Postgres can understand. So it adds essentially a compatibility layer to Postgres, Aurora Postgres, to translate um, TDS, um, which is the wire protocol the SQL server uses, uh, to a standard sort of SQL dialect that you don't have to pay a fortune for a, a server to interpret for you. So do, do you know where the name come from? Uh, it comes from the uh, Babelfish, which is a, a, a creature in the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, 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 pop it, you pop it in your ear and it translates any language on the fly into the language you understand. So, yeah, it's a good name for it. Yeah. 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 So I think that's the exact function that uh, and hopefully we're going to see more of them to be able to get out of the big red and the big blue and come from the more open source type of uh, SQL servers. Yeah. Yeah. So you think they'll, they'll, they'll be a Babel fish for Oracle next? Oh, they have to. They have to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the, the the main you know uh, focus. Like get off of Oracle. That has been the 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 crusade for the last two years. So I'm sure Babelfish is going to come for that. Yeah. So I think any anyone who's currently invested in SQL Server and is looking at the eye watering uh, licensing costs associated with uh, running it in AWS, we're out running it anywhere. Really, yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, if you, you, you all you have to do is compare the costs of um, Aurora Postgres and RDS SQL Server uh, to see uh, where the money can be saved, and uh, it can be a very significant amount of money. So, well, Aurora is a very mature product, right? You have very high availability, very good performance. So um, the backend is fantastic. Oh yeah, uh, having now Bubblefish in in front. Uh, at no extra cost, by the way, when you set up an Aurora cluster, you need to have version 13.4, uh, but then you can, uh, you know, install Babelfish for free. And that's going to be a, a massive uh, uh, improvement. I've got some customer interested. Uh, we need to do some more testing and understand the compatibility. We are a bit scared that of the share of product, they're not going to be supported. The vendor is going to say, no, 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 you need to use SQL 17 or something like that. Uh, but I think it was a test uh, for any internal app and uh, could buy a license. I mean, Microsoft has been pretty bad since 2019 when they set up this new rule of not bring your own license and two standard, one for Azure, one for themselves, and then one for, for the other cloud. Yeah, that that's uh, that was uh, coming, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks pretty complete. I mean, they've got um, support for static curses, data types, triggers, stored procedures, and functions. So it's no slouch. And I think um, you know the other thing too is that a lot of there's a huge number of workloads out there. I would say that are using SQL Server because they were written by .NET developers who only understand. Microsoft technologies, and they would have just plugged in SQL Server because, hey, we get it free with their MSDN license. And now the application's grown, and we have to run it on enterprise, and it's costing us a fortune. And how did we how did we ever come to this point? You know, but they're not actually doing anything particularly fancy. You know, they're not actually doing anything particularly complicated. They're not necessarily using any of the more arcane specialist proprietary features in SQL Server. They're just using it as a database. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of um, applications out there today that could 
run on this quite happily. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see how, how the take-up uh, looks, you know, six months from now, a year from now. It'll be interesting to see what, you know, how many, how many workloads they managed to, to pull off SQL Server and uh, onto Oracle Postgres. Uh, sorry, or Oracle, Aurora Postgres. Wash, wash my mouth out with soap. Arjen, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long did it took? Uh, that was announced a year ago, two years ago. It was re- the last reinvent. Uh, so it, it took twelve months. Yeah, yeah. It's not too bad in how long it took. Considering considering how complex this 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 thing is, I think too, or, or how many how many cases they would need to test. I guess I, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I think this is good. Like a, a year out, it's 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 a pretty good result. A lot of testing. I recommend people if they want to use it, test it, load test it, see what it look like, and, and uh, get free of licensing. Yep. Yeah. And if you need to have it on prem, there's also an open source version of it available. Yeah. I wonder what you need in the backend to install that. Yeah. I think it's Postgres. No, no. But if you Just... need an agent, you put an agent on the box. They'll run in memory. What's what's the the package you need to? Uh... Well, since here today, we are excited to announce the release of open source Babelfish for Postgres, a capability that lets Postgres understand queries from applications written for Microsoft SQL Server. It's a set of extensions that provide TSQL capabilities and TDS listener support. At listener port as enhancements to Postgres. Postgres. So it will listen on port fourteen thirty three, right, and then redirect to. What is it? Uh, Postgres five four three eight. Is it? Do you think that that's going to be that? It, it doesn't sound so. It sounds like from this that it kind of sits alongside. It doesn't. It doesn't sit in front of. It sits alongside of, and it's just another. It's another. It probably bypasses a lot of the Postgres. You know, the Postgres server, um, and goes direct to data stores or underlying. You know, low lower level um, operations. It does itself. Yeah, because you can also still use Postgres directly. Yeah, directly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's just two different endpoints for the same database. Mm, yeah. So Postgres 5432, sorry, I did a mistake. So it's got four four extensions. There's a extension that supports T-SQL. There's an extension that supports TDS-Y protocol. There's a common one which supports new data, new data types found in T-SQL. And there's a money extension supporting the money type in SQL Server. So there you go. So it's four four different extensions. Yep. You basically bake them into Postgres. Yep. And you have to patch. That's right. You patch Postgres and you you add those extensions to it essentially. So it's like a yeah. It's like a fish elephant. <laughs> okay. Moving on. RDS Proxy supports MySQL version eight. Yep. Which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have AWS knock-on SSDs. Um, so they come on SSDs now, 14 terabyte of SSD instead of 8 terabyte of disk. I uh, found that, yeah, great that they, they offer SSDs, much more reliable, much more shock resistance, I guess, as well. Uh, 2 CPU, 4 gig memory. The device fee for the SSD is much more expensive, though it's $150 for the job and then $15 per day instead of 6 dollars per day for the other one and if you lose a device it's five grand so yeah don't lose it <laughs> and they're so small so easy to lose <laughs> um there's a couple of open search announcements uh cross cluster replication um support 
and uh, improvements to the management console. As we, I think, probably had announcements last month, uh, I think they're going to probably come fairly consistently, announcements around OpenSearch. Clearly, Amazon are working on this and, uh, uh, you know, wanting to... to, uh, wanting to leave behind the Elasticsearch legacy, I guess, and, and make their own, break their own new ground with, with what OpenSearch can be. Yeah, expect more announcements. Yeah, this one, I mean, the cross-replication cross, uh, is a great feature. In the past, they had to export, uh, you know, indexes and copy them and then re-import them, all of that. Now it can be done automatically for you uh, across the two clusters and keep them in sync and, and stuff like that. So for high availability, really a good, even across regions, right? Um, uh, to be able to have uh, open search services now across region, highly available. Uh, we had uh, the Oracle custom RDS Oracle. It's quite interesting, yeah, to be able to have for the first time SSH to an RDS instance and be able to do more stuff with the OS than you used to be to allow people to move basically to Oracle uh, faster on RDS uh, from one point when you have, you know, the Apex app and all this other kind of stuff around that you carry. There is no multi AZ option store for that. It's only single AZ. Hmm. Uh, because I'm, I'm studying for the... Uh data analytics exam at the moment. So I did see the, uh, did note the glue crawler support for Amazon S3 event notifications announcement looks quite nice. It basically uh, supports um, S3 event notifications as a source for glue crawlers to incrementally update glue data catalog tables. So it does that by sending of um, S3 event notifications to an SQS queue, which the crawler then uh, reads from and uses as a uh, trigger for rerunning the glue job to check for new data and index it. Cool. So instead of running your crawler on, on, on schedule or something, you just wait for the notification, yeah? That's right. So it's more efficient and you, let, you run your crawler for less time so it saves you money and, yeah, all that stuff, yeah. Nice. On the AI and ML side, some, I feel like, fairly minor improvements to various SageMaker things. I'm not sure what the big advantages are, so I'll skip them. I didn't look. Um, Amazon Kendra launched support for 34 additional languages. Um, so a lot of them now. And the new language are available in uh, US, uh, Oregon, Ireland, and Sydney. Yes, so that's good. Fraud detector is um, a big price reduction. Sort of, sort of. It's not really a big price reduction. So it's a big pro. It's a it's a big price reduction if you're doing a hundred thousand fraud predictions per month. So uh, the the basically they've shifted the tiers for the discounts down from uh, 1.2 million to get to the um, that cheaper that cheapest number. You now only have to do a hundred thousand. So it's a significant saving if you are doing a lot of fraud detection, uh, fraud, fraud, fraud predictions per month, but um, it's not really a price reduction per se, in the sense that you're still going to be paying quite a bit for the first 100,000. And similarly, Fraud Detector has some uh, improvements as well. Uh, another one, though, that I did find interesting is with Transcribe. For streaming transcription, you can now support custom language models. So in Transcribe, custom language models are basically where you can define what 
certain terms how they should be shown. So, for example, if we are talking about a lot of AWS things and services, we might want to to automatically understand what how EBS, VPC, Macy, all these kind of acronyms and possibly strange names, how they are shown. And it's nice to see that that's also now possible when you're streaming instead of just when you run the transcripts later on. Cool. Of course, we've seen how good it work, how good transcribe works with our podcast. So don't expect us to start using it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's available in Sydney if you want to play with it. Yeah. Um, other cool stuff. A mm-hmm. couple of IoT announcements, which I'm guessing you expect I'm going to be excited about. Um, so the IoT core now makes it optional for customers to send the entire, the entire trust chain when provisioning devices. So previously, if you wanted to onboard a bunch of existing devices, it would be a major pain in the clack. Um, this announcement just makes this a little bit easier. So if you've got an existing um, fleet of devices, they can be onboarded into IoT Core more, more readily. And with SiteWise, you can now basically model um, one, you can create an asset model that you can then reuse. So if you've got a lot of the same thing, rather than having to re- re-describe them, you can um, cut and paste. You can reuse that asset model multiple times in your uh, SiteWise. Oh, and a long-awaited thing that we've all been anxiously awaiting for is the support of VMware Cloud on AWS Outposts. <laughs> This was actually in the original announcement of Outposts uh, back in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you must, yes. <laughs> that's, that's, some, that's some real Inception shit, isn't it? Um, <laughs> like, it's so, you're inside the dream and you're having a nightmare <laughs> and you're inside VMware in an Outpost in a on-prem managed by vmware <laughs> so i'll remind everyone that uh, vmware or vmc or this one vmware on on outpost um it's owned by vmware so you rely on vmware that's why maybe that was took so long to deploy it's not aws it's more vmware uh, but you you your instance will live on your aws outpost but otherwise it's managed by vmware so interesting uh, component uh why you would do that I'm not sure. Um, it take four to six weeks to provision. We're coming back, you know, in time uh, and, and having to provision hardware to be able to create VMware environment. Uh, why not running that on your own, on your own hardware? Presumably because you want to integrate with Lambda and RDS and whatever, yeah, all the other AWS services. <laughs> yeah, but you would do that in cloud, not on-prem. So, yeah. Not sure. Well, who are you to say? <laughs> I'll do it on-prem if I feel like it. That's isn't that what Outpost is all about? With your other Outpost, but no, you can't. You can't have any. Um, you can have only your VMware on that Outpost. You can't have any other things. You need another Outpost for that. Oh, so all oh, right. So your your Outpost that's got VMware is only dedicated to VMware hardware. You ca- you cannot run anything else on that. You can't run. It's it's managed by VMware as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So not too bad. That yeah. is that is interesting. Okay. Learn something new every day. 
especially doing this podcast. I learn. I learn, Mr. Faulty. I learn. And you use the VMware Cloud Portal and all of that to provision that. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Um, another new surface is AWS Panorama. Yeah. Did you have a look at this? I, I was sort of trying to see exactly how it fits in because it seems like it's so it's image pro it's computer vision at the edge so so it's an appliance right yeah yeah it's an appliance it's got self-contained compute and it's got a couple of ethernet ports you can hook it up to some stuff to cameras yep yeah to cameras and do image processing on prem so it's like a, you know, what's, what's, what was the little camera they had, the lens? What was it, the thing that actually had a Deep lens. Deep lens, deep lens. So it's like they put, they've taken the camera off the deep lens, made it bigger, and put it in a box. And you, pro- you provide your own IP cameras, so you have a charge per cameras, per feed. You need to pay for the appliance, which is $4,000. The appliance itself is a one-time charge. And then you have a $8.33 per feed. So, um, and then you have to pay for your S3 and, and, and all of that, obviously, uh, to store all the, these Im- images. But, you know, you push down your model, you do your analysis on prime uh, of your feed, and um, yeah, you can display your telemetries and all of that. So, I mean, cool stuff if you need to do that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, and I mentioned it again because uh, doing this um, study for this um, data analytics course, QuickSight now has support for pixel perfect dashboards so tell me what it is pixel perfect do i need a a retina display so what it means is that instead of having a relatively fixed grid of uh, widgets um on your dashboard you can move them around um and you can you know have more control over their size and their position and the layering of them and there's also support for dynamic resizing based on data um sort of based on the data so if something yeah so it can be context sensitive depending on what the state is of of a thing so it's it's just about being able to make more customize the dashboards to be more useful i guess and less rigidly mapped out for you Cool. Okay. So it's um, improving the product. Yes, I think it's probably improving the product quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's available in Sydney. Yep. Cool. And that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you all enjoyed listening and maybe learned something new, just like I did. Before we sign off, I want to thank the user group sponsors for their support. That is our gold sponsor, CMD and our silver sponsors, CFO and Furson. Of course, I also want to join my co-hosts for spending this time with me, Guy Morton. Thank you, Ian. A pleasure as always. And Jean-Manuel Becker. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you, Guy. Um, thank you, listener. Also, I want to call out that you can find the user group itself at melp.awsug.org.au or as at awsmelp on Twitter. If you go to our website, you can also join our Slack, where plenty of AWS-focused discussions take place. So thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next month. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.